to Weeks When Podcasts Happen. It's been a while uh, since we had a podcast happen. Well, we got a couple of new guests. Uh, well, one new guest and one old guest, though they're both still young guests. I don't know how to phrase that. Um, but today we're talking about the biggest new boogeyman on the conservative side of the world and something that I don't think really anybody in the public sphere really understands. Um, and that's critical race theory. Uh, it's apparently the most important thing uh, that the Democrats have ever defended publicly and the conservatives have ever hated. But yeah, we're here to talk about it a little bit, dig into why uh, both sides are struggling with it, what it actually is, as well as just sort of like some of the dynamics around uh, this pseudo fight. But yeah, first, I'm going to have each person uh, introduce themselves, you can give your name, pronouns, uh, city if you want, and then if you have credentials you want to share, you can. Anybody want to start? Sure, I can start. <laughs> I wasn't sure like who's going to go. Um. So hello, everybody. My name is Jasenia Venegas. I currently live in Detroit. I'm from New York City. Um, as far as credentials, I mean, I am a public school teacher at the moment, teaching kindergarten all the way to eighth grade. Um, I'm also an organizer and cultural worker and an artist. Um, so I have pretty many different hats that I play. And I'll pass the ball over to our other guest, Thank you. I am Soraya. I use she and they pronouns. I am I graduated from a Michigan public university. I studied history. I am a grassroots organizer and currently working to be an abolitional abolitionist social work student. So yeah, that's me. Awesome. Um, and yeah, I'm Ian. If you're on episode 19, you've probably figured out who I am, but yeah, I'm, uh, I'm, I help run this podcast. I use him pronouns and I live in Detroit. Um, I also went to college and did some other things as well, but go back and listen to other episodes and increase our listenership to find out more about me. But yeah, basically uh, we're going to start off just talking a little bit about what the hell uh, critical race theory actually is. Um, and I think there's a big division between what the thing is and how the phrase critical race theory is currently being used and applied by conservatives and Democrats alike. I could throw out sort of like a more standard definition of critical race theory if that's helpful. Basically, uh, critical race theory, the thing it actually is, is a analytical framework that looks at the way that race plays a fundamental role in shaping the structures, institutions, and um, all the way down to relationships in some cases of folks operating in society, specifically uh, US society. And it's generally in the past like introduced in at the collegiate or at the law school level. Um, it used to basically just be a, a method of analyzing structures and figuring out, yeah, basically acknowledging and understanding the role race plays in those structures. So you're not just sort of pretending that there's some mean racist people, but they never built a state. And that's not how it's being used publicly. Uh, so yeah, how have y'all kind of been hearing when did you all maybe first start hearing about critical race theory, either publicly or in its actual like academic usage? And how does that definition match up with what you've been hearing? Well, I'll take a little jab at this just because um, I started hearing about this critical race theory thing from, um, I, I want to say it was an article or like some kind of like on, on the news that there was going to be a law passed, or if it has passed already, I think that they were going to ban teachers from teaching this in schools. Um, and it, for, 
like from my perspective, I kind of laugh because it's just like one, we're not really teaching critical race theories in school to begin with. And two, um, you it's being presented as if it's this like biased, right? Like a biased approach to understanding race in the United States of America. It's being presented as if like, it's um, like you're teaching, you're trying to push an ideology onto students or like, you know, almost as almost kind of like that whole religion, like, you know, we have a division between state and, you know, religion in this country, supposedly. And so it's kind of being played like this is something that parents should discuss with their students, not the state shouldn't be in charge of talking about these things, which really is about race in America. Um, and you can't, if we're going to talk about, if you're going to say we need to teach kids the truth, then this is kind of a framework that we do need to teach. Yeah, thank you. So I started hearing about the phrase critical race theory, probably more so this year than before, at least using these words. Honestly, previously, my like my encounter with like schools being pressured to like not discuss like racism critically kind of started like my first year of college, I did a research project on like the Mexican-American studies curriculum that was like uh, that a bunch of students rally and teachers rallied to support in I think in like Arizona and I think that like the 20 like 2017 and then ever since then like in different spaces I've like noticed more like where pushes to try to use like the public school setting to help to support students in understanding like race gender um like topics related to equity and like how uh, how different um how different school settings have either supported or uh rallied against uh using the public school setting for in that way and then like as a as a student I got assigned like looking at uh the 1619 project as like part of an assignment um and from there I sort of started googling and seeing a little like more and more about like the way like the kind of like very organized like strategic uh rallies against things like that particular project as well as like DEI training or diversity equity inclusion training and stuff like that at universities like how it's being mapped out not weaponized but how it's being like uh strategically I don't know opposed no I, I think I really like the way Jasenia um you were laying out that idea of like it almost being like religion in schools. Like, I, cause I think that is not something I've heard enunciated before. I think I, I, I really vibe with what both of you are saying is it's been this sort of slow introduction, but I, I really like that framework of like, I think there is a segment of the US population that treats it almost like sex ed. Like that shouldn't be covered in school, which also sex ed should be covered in school. But there's this like vibe of like, parents should discuss the horrors of racism in private. And the public schools should cover the glory that is George Washington and crossing the Delaware as a liberatory moment for mankind. Um, and it, it's a very weird, because yeah, I mean, the, as you both touched on, like critical race theory has been expanded to basically cover if a conservative parent institution anchor on Fox News doesn't like a thing, then it's critical race theory. It, it really, it's a phrase that is so umbrellified that it has no standard definition, I would say, on the on the right. And it's kind of surreal to like, get down to what they're actually advocating because a lot of them will then be like, well, I'm not being racist. I want to actually get back to the history. But as I think all of us know, if you look at history at all, race has a lot to fucking do with it. And just, yeah, it, it's it's a very contradictory position to hold. And it does seem to be 
a little bit more of this, like that should be in the private sphere. Like the horrors of our structural racism and of slavery should be touched upon in school perhaps, but should be left to like a private discussion behind closed doors. And that's not what school's about. Yeah. I just want to like talk about that a little more because there's that, that privacy line, right? Like with the sex ed stuff, like some folks, there's a big, you know, camp that's all about it being a private thing. And then some folks are all about being something that we should, kids should be taught all together, right? Um, and the same thing with this, but in the, in this part, you know, for me, it's just kind of appalling to be like, we can't teach this in school. And I forgot which political celebrity, Tucker something maybe, went on a show saying that teachers should um, maybe not be forced to like be video like recorded or something to make sure they don't teach critical race theory because it's divisive. Um, and to me, then, you know, there's, there's these common themes that creep up often in our American politics and in, in American culture and pop culture, this idea between what is private and what is public and where do we draw the line, right? If a parent doesn't want their child to, to know about, I don't know, they don't want their kid to learn a particular religion, right? In this case, they don't want, for me, it's just hard. Like they don't want, you don't want your kids to know about critical race theory. Like you're not gonna tell them about slavery, which is like the basic, or you're not gonna tell them about the literal statistical, factual, objective numbers of the way that race affects the nation. Like it's not even just about being anti-racist. Also like that's important to know period if you wanna go into business, if you wanna do anything. So it's like, we're trying to, again, hide this part of American past. And I just, I don't think it's going to work. And that, I don't think that's going to work to be honest. I think it's going to fail um, because there's just too much information out there and accessible to students that I think that, you know, you know, if they really want to know about the history of the USA, they can go online and they're going to find out um, regardless. Yeah, something that I was struck by as I was like reading, prepare, preparing for like this episode was like everything, everything is, has some type of bias. Everybody has personal stake in like why they become a teacher, why they might write a textbook, why they put, why they might produce or act in or direct a particular show. And it felt like this, like, as I was reading the articles about this, it just feels very much like the right is adapting leftist language and also leftist tactics in order to just, like, eliminate and or weaken, like, support for using public ed spaces as a place where, like, students are encouraged to, like, critically think um, and, and potentially like oppose things that they've learned elsewhere, um, which is really, which was making me really sad because, and it's pretty scary. Like one of my, um, one of my first um, like writing classes in college was about like specifically like we read like Asada Shakur, we read like, I think we read like a book called Critical Race Theory. And, the, and like the reason that like I became an organizer, the reason that I was honestly wanted to be a history teacher for a while is because of like how possible it felt to support students and like finding like identifying where they wanted to fit in and like building up their understanding of the world through education and so it's 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 painful to see like conservative parents conservative uh like politicians like like stoke these flames of like very active 
activated uh quote-unquote patriotic thinking around like what can and cannot be allowed in school because like when I I think the other side of this that I I haven't seen as ton of perspectives on yet is like what it feels like for the black and brown kids like like to consistently be reading narratives that don't honor what happened to them and their lineages like I know like the conversations that I had to field as one of like maybe two black students in like AP US history in West Michigan like that shaped that shaped me not I'm not gonna say scarred because <laughs> that sounds too emotional for this podcast but it did shape like how I thought about myself for a long time and that and that was something that I had to unlearn as I became more politicized and so I just like when I think about this conversation I'm thinking about like okay so let's say whether let's say they lose this like the fight for like you know opposing critical race theory in public school loses what does the future look like and if it wins if public education settings become in like a a hands-off we won't talk about you know critical uh critical views of of history or critical assessments of power because that's kind of what this is what happens then and what do the the same way like we see impacts of education policy, you know, like 10 and 20 years after it gets implemented, what are the impact, what, what would be the impacts of this for young kids in the US if we cannot identify like where, how to struggle against this like push for erasure? Yeah, I just, I want to kind of continue with this conversation of the, the push like that, you know, you're ta- talking about um, Soraya because to me, when I started hearing about critical race theory and the controversy around it in schools, I'm like, we don't even really teach it in schools though. You know what I'm saying? Like, I'm like, what, how threatening can this be that it's not even like a fully instilled curriculum in any, at least not that I know of in Michigan. I don't think there's like a critical race theory curriculum. Like I, you know, there's a few um, friends that I know that are moving in that direction. But to me, it's telling how threatening this you know framework this perspective of understanding history in america which you absolutely need to understand america is critical race theory so i'm just like what you know how threatening is it you know like what is it that they saw that really scared them to be like oh my gosh we cannot teach these in schools you know because i always feel like when there's these responses from the state that is like banning certain things that at least from my perspective i didn't think that we were there you know like if I was seeing implementation of, you know, like for example, there's like Black Lives Matter curriculum across different states, you know, in the US and maybe I'd be like, oh, you know, we're some kind of threat, but in, in a good way, like the good kind of threat that this should be taught. But right now I'm like already, and we haven't even really been a push to implement it for real. So, you know, to me, it's kind of telling of the power that this framework might have um, to shift the understanding of power and race in our country and bring some reality and truth to it. And I think that's important to, to highlight. I think it might be useful just to like step into a little bit of like where this, this quote unquote movement has come from. Um, and just, yeah, this is not a, a PhD thesis on uh, the history of right-wing funded anti-education campaigns, but this most recent round comes out of a long tradition of right-wing money going into uh, pseudo grassroots groups um, and specifically uh, supporting more conservative history standards. But this most recent round has been a 
bunch of dark money flowing from uh, donors like the Koch brothers and other big money, right wing folks, probably any of the bad ones have helped out into some uh, quote unquote grassroots groups. One of the biggest currently is called No Left Turn in Education. And it was founded directly in response to school discussions around the George Floyd protests, where parents were frustrated and worried about the teaching of concepts like structural racism in their students' curriculum, saw that as a left-wing takeover of education, and then began to push and pressure school board members, um, and basically saw them as trying to set standards or okaying standards that they were uncomfortable with for their students. Now, those standards were accurate (laughs) um, in many cases, like adapting horribly out-of-date curriculums around race to include race or to include structural racism is an important change that we should all be fighting for. But these parents felt like the old textbooks that pretended it wasn't a problem were the best for their kids. So they started like, you know, doing uh, little decentralized kind of chapter-based organizing uh, that very quickly caught the attention of some of these big donors. A bunch of money was dumped on them as well as a bunch of coverage. So you had groups uh, like Fox News, um, the right-wing sort of blogosphere and YouTubeosphere. I don't know. Um, pretend I use the right words for both of those. Kind of picked it up and like, yeah, this the small group that is explicitly trying to push back against the discussion of where George, George Floyd protests came from. I was suddenly featured on Tucker Carlson, getting a viewership of tens of millions on Fox News. And like you referenced, like these folks started talking at the national level about uh, introducing cameras into classrooms and monitoring teachers to make sure that there's quote unquote transparency in teaching and they're not indoctrinating your children or more accurately that they're indoctrinating your children into the right national myth. Folks like Steve Bannon started talking explicitly about this being a new front in conservative struggle and like a key to uh, making sure that they can continue essentially to continue to have a heartland of voters uh, that the conservative movement can rely upon. If everybody starts engaging with the idea that racism and maybe capitalism even weren't great for a lot of people in history, you might start having a lot less conservative voters. So there's a a self-interested piece of this for the political class. And then the kind of third part that's happened is uh, folks like the, uh, or big foundations and think tanks uh, have started to get in on the game. So back in December, There was a pretty big article that came out from the Heritage Foundation that sort of tied critical race theory, uh, like basically identified critical race theory with these sort of movements to discuss race, kind of like put it all into a big, properly researched and cited, not accurate, but, you know, they made it look academic (laughs) report that explicitly tied it to Marxism. They said it's critical theory, which is connected to, basically connected to traditions of Marxism, and that that made it explicitly bad um, and therefore it should be opposed and basically frame the whole thing in academic language as a takeover. And so there's sort of like this whole ecosystem around this idea has very rapidly developed in part because the money started flowing, but yeah, you've got local uh, conservative groups of parents and just community members at times who don't have any kids at all uh, protesting school board members um, there's the most uh, school board members are being threatened with recall or being voted out of office. Um, I think it's 50 recall efforts that are looking to recall 126 school board members, which is more this year than in any one year previously. So yeah, it is a, it is a big sudden movement that is very intentionally being cultivated by the right at the national level, both with funding, with media, and then with politicians who are starting to push it in congressional testimony, as I'm sure folks have seen. For me, the big question there is like, why this? Mm -hmm. Like what purpose is this sudden influx of cash and investment and coverage? Like, I think all of us have been involved in work that involved far more people and was part of a far more important struggle. 
but got far less coverage, interest, and like engagement from a national media. Um, and so, yeah, I don't know if you all have thoughts on like why this thing is getting the money dumped on it and who is being helped or what, mm -hmm. what purpose this is serving for the right or for anyone. Yeah, I mean, I have that question too, like from before, just like why now, what's going on? Um, I mean, definitely, I think that there's a lot of power in, in maintaining a particular narrative of the, the, the myth of the American country and what it stands for. I think if critical race theory becomes an actual part of the curriculum in the United States, that we'd have to start to look at some of the um, societal ills like poverty, you know, and all these things. And there would actually be a reasoning for it. It wouldn't just be the same old, well, you know, they didn't work hard enough or they made the wrong choice. They chose the wrong partner. They went to the wrong school. They chose the wrong career. They bought the house at the wrong time during the market. You know, like all these excuses that we keep on making for why poverty exists and why it exists so heavily in communities of color, especially black and brown communities. Um, but if we actually began to understand the way race and the relationships between the races have played out in the U.S., we can't make those excuses anymore. You know, we really can't because we begin to see where, how our nation's been built off exploitation. I think that because of all the George Floyd protests, for example, the, the summers that just passed, because of social media, because of the ability to pass information from one person to the other so quickly, whether it's the next neighborhood, the next city, the next town, the next state, or another country, you know, it's how do you, how is the ruling class or those who are, have most of the power, how are they gonna maintain their stories and their myths to keep most of the people under the illusion that poverty in America is a choice when it's not? Oof, yeah, I, I want I so badly want to be less cynical but <laughs> <laughs> but here we are honestly and this is going to sound like oh I don't I just I don't know how this is going to sound but it just feels like this is like that white supremacist like enslavement era wealth that was built mm -hmm. is still very much like a part of the U.S. economy and these, like these, these individual families, these various foundations, have been able to accumulate wealth. This whole, like, more than other people in that particular era, era, and then also like, until now, continue to do so. And now, they've got a lot of personal stake in maintaining, you know, a political, um, a political climate that is racist, is white supremacist, that will disparage wealth distribution. And this, to me, just feels like a front wherein they can go to work to like, um, like weaken, you know, the liberal and the left and the like the leftist abilities to challenge that kind of thing. Because like the political, like the public education space as a side of struggle is particularly devastating, because not only, not only can you like, threaten and not well maybe not threaten exactly unless you're like unless you mean like like people's jobs people's like positions on the school board you can not only like silence adults but you can also shape kids and like the future like this is <laughs> so it just feels like like the, the it feels like this is uh part of the cliche like every action has an equal opposite reaction you had like the trump era 
as sort of a a reaction to the years that came before it and now we have had like 2018 all of these young non-christian um black and brown you know women and feminine people like joining the political arena in, in what seemed like unprecedented numbers and now we've got like the the biden era sort of res- meant to be like responding to the trump era theoretically and we are coming into this space of like what is the reaction going to be to this you know uh this like do these shifts of power and we're seeing like the strategy we're seeing the strategy that is being employed now which is to really censor like publicly accessible education spaces in order to maintain this narrative that like we shouldn't be critiquing the US um i feel like i sound a little bit like a tin hat person when i say that but that's where i'm at i mean i i feel you on the cynicism you know um and i think this is also like this continuation of the red scare from the 1900s of just relating like there's this trend on the right of relating all these things to so-called the left or communism or the socialism these like evil systems or whatever and like Ian mentioned earlier this critical race theory being uh in one of the articles like one of the places it pulls from is Marxism and so all of a sudden you know it becomes this threat um and I think this is a pattern that we've seen with different you know different ideologies different ideas different types of people that come up being related anywhere to the left or communism is like this evil thing that must be stopped because it threatens the freedom and democracy of America. And just like the conservatives are going to preach that if you, if we teach critical race theory, it's very divisive. And, you know, it's not about the freedom and the democracy that America has, you know, and they're going to defend their choice. It's always about the so-called choice, their choice of what they want to teach their children and the freedom of choice that Americans are supposed to have. And, you know, I just see this going into this long battle of so-called choice and freedom and making sure that the government isn't meddling in people's private lives. And I think that's where I see this like continuing and going. Yeah, well, I think that the, I think the red scare thing you mentioned there is illustrative of, I think there's, I think there's two goals here. I think one is the long-term struggle for hearts and minds that is part of the long Absolutely. struggle for hegemony that's always kind of going on. And this is a, what is seen as a crucial point. Um, I think some conservatives are seeing this as like, they're willing to write off college in some ways as this like space where uh, they would lose some elites to liberalism, but they knew that those numerically, those folks weren't powerful enough or organized enough uh, as a group or as a class to change things. And I think that there is a fear of some of those ideas trickling down um, into public schools because that starts getting into working class communities. And if working class communities start having an analysis that includes race, they might be able to work more collaboratively across uh, things like race uh, for common interests, which a lot of working class people have. But I think like the red scare point, there is this element of like, it by discovering a a yarn line to Marxism in any argument, uh, you discount that argument. It's like once you can trace something back to Marxism or communism, it's like <laughs> we win. You made the fatal mistake of connecting exactly. to socialism. <laughs> um, and I think that that argument is not intended so much for the public. That argument is intended for a Republican base. I think that 
the way I see this in the short term is a, this is a, a mobilization tool for 2022. The idea that everyone is happy with Biden, which he has very high poll numbers right now, an idea that can help mobilize your base is if those high poll numbers are because of indoctrination. They're, those high poll numbers and that sense of, oh, thank God, is actually because these people are being controlled. And if you can, I think that's a narrative that fits very well into this moment. And it's worth noting that many of these uh, pushes to like remove school board members that have already come through have failed miserably. Like a lot of these things are less about any local win and more about agitating our Republican base in preparation for the next election. I think there's, so I think they're playing at kind of two levels there. I think the one is the, hopefully there are more conservative children and we keep them American loving, God fearing anti-communists. And the other is just like, we need these people to turn out and give us the Senate and the house in 2022. And they, and if they do that, they think they can beat Biden in 2024. I think that, yeah, there's a very practical, like almost tomorrow level argument that they're making internally there too. I didn't even think about that, Ian, to be honest. And I, I appreciate that because it makes sense. It's like the perfect setup. Like you have a reason to go out and vote because this other candidate is going to be making sure they protect, you know, your freedom of choice to teach your children your truth or whatever they're going to frame it as, right? Or to make sure that we're not indoctrinating. And I think this idea of indoctrination, to a certain degree, it's like we're all indoctrinated. Now, do we get a choice in that? I, you know, like, should we, we have a choice in that? Is there a way to have a choice in that? Because there's, as you grow up, you're literally absorbing things around you. And the U.S. is really good at culturally embedding their values into us as you grow up through the public school system and the school system in general. Um, so like this idea of indoctrination, I'm just like, sometimes I'm just like, yeah, we want, we want our people to start thinking differently that working class folks have more in common than differences and have more to win and we fight together than if we stay apart. Yeah, we want to change the hearts and minds of people just like the Republican Party is trying to do. For, I mean, I'm assuming we're leftists, but we may not be. But for me, like one of my critiques of the left and, and in these things is that we don't have that togetherness and that like unity and movement to create those, those things. And I think that even before we're even really getting started, the right is already kind of trying to decimate that the possibilities of creating those kinds of indoctrinations and those kinds of values and ideologies for our people in public schools. So yeah, I, I just went with that one. That one just flowed right out of me. So take, take that and do what you want with it. <laughs> no, I think it's, I th and I think just like, just to touch on this is in the note, I think this does bear a striking resemblance to the Tea Party. Mm. And it's a mirror image of a Democratic Party coming into power with a lot of popularity, just in part because they are replacing a horrible Republican administration mm. um, and a right-wing top-down funded astroturfed movement um, that gets a lot of media coverage because the rich people also control the media mm. um, and becomes a big part of the national conversation. And then the Tea Party died out um, once they stopped funding it. They were more willing to maybe play with the dangerous edge of some of that uh, than the Democrats often are. Like the Republicans were willing to watch a few Republican House of Reps folks go down to Tea Party folks in order to fire up their base. Whereas the Democrats are often more willing to kill their base first, then turn around and ask them to vote for them in the next election, as we've seen in the last couple of primaries. But yeah, I think there is a there's a parallel there where this is, I think this is in some ways the Tea Party of the moment. Like this is a way to put a bunch of grievances centered quiet, like quietly or not so quietly in this case, I guess Trump's changed things a bit around race um, and around uh, protecting the wealthy 
but mobilizing a base of people towards those goals and get, yeah, getting them fired up into the midterm. I just, I think it's worth drawing that parallel. This isn't the first time they've done this. Like, I think it's, it's happened before it'll happen again. <laughs> Thank you both of you for pointing that out. Cause it also reminded me, or I just want to affirm that like, yeah, the Democrats have not as a, as a party structure have not moved to be as aggressive for their things in the way that Republicans are. Like we've got people openly willing, like the Republicans are people who are openly willing to be like, yep, this idea, I don't want my kid to learn about structural racism. I don't want, I don't want like gender equity to be discussed in schools. I don't want LGBT books in my kid's library. Like we've got folks who are willing to do that for this, like, because they have personal stake in maintaining homophobia and racism. But like the Democratic Party is so bent on being like, a coalition, we kind of talk about this a lot uh, in in org spaces, like the Democratic Party is so bent on being a coalition of non-Republicans that they won't take aggressive stances like that. And the moments where it kind of looks like they will, it's usually because there's some sort of like massive, you know, national protest, some sort of like, some sort of push that is making it like, po- like politically, um, politically beneficial beneficial to like hold some type of stance that um could be potentially mistaken as liberatory (laughs) Uh, yeah i think it's interesting like just to think about like if if the democrats after each election doubled down on their funding of their base and of the of their basis groups like i think a lot of us have engaged in the nonprofit sphere in some way shape or form where you watch budgets drop after elections that the democrats win or you watch experimental programming shunted aside for turnout numbers. And the right doesn't appear to be concerned with turnout numbers from a lot of their base organizations. They're concerned with firing, with with engagement and with enthusiasm. And yeah, I can speak from personal experience, just yeah, the the feeling of sort of like having to sideline that work and apologize for that work and fit that work of like base building and ideology building around work that was very demobilizing for our base, but was mandated by funders or mandated by uh, uh, different structures. I think it's just a very different take where like one group is concerned about firing up people too much. And the other group is basically like, oh, we want a couple of of mad dogs at any any given time. And just, yeah, how things would be different if the Democrats had, or Democrats were the progressive side of things vaguely that won't admit to be, that won't like have any sort of thing to do with socialism. If they embrace some of that, if they had like, we're going to fund the Marxist education project. We're going to fund the working class solidarity uh, in schools organization. And that's all just about like getting those things put into curriculums where we talk about labor struggles and we talk about slave revolts. And that's like just the whole thing. <laughs> like that's their whole, like that's a whole different world that like, I think sometimes we don't step back and realize that's what the Republicans are doing on the other side. That's what the conservatives are doing is they're like, oh yeah, we're going to put proto-fascism in every step and everything. And that'll make us more powerful. Yeah, they're putting in. Yeah, they're they're putting in their values. They're really standing into like this is the kind of place we want. And I feel like for me, the Democrats, it just there's no teeth because they are just so almost like on the fence about everything, you know. And because at the end of the day, do they really are they really for the interests that that we're seeking? Like they they maintain the status quo. I feel like more than anyone. And in trying to maintain that, they let the other side just walk everywhere and be bold and make bills that actually support their ideologies. And I don't see that 
you know, from the Democrats, unless there is a big outcry from the people, but it shouldn't, you know, I'm like, really? Like you, like they should be hyping us up with what they're doing, just like the right does. And like you're saying, Ian, that's exactly what they do. They don't mind the hype. They want to see people out there. They want to see people engage. And I feel like a lot of folks, especially progressive folks, young folks, like I don't know, but I'm keep losing this like hope in any hope from a Democratic Party or a Republican Party. At this point, I'm like, we need more parties. And we need more choices. <laughs> I bet I'm like, is more choices gonna do anything? Probably not. I'm gonna end there because I'll just go on a rant of the voting system in America. And this is about critical race theory. <laughs> I feel that because like the, we need more, we need more options. We need strong enough. We need a strong enough, I'll say leftist party. If, ele- if like electoral politics is your bag. Um, we need a strong enough elect, like leftist electoral something that can push because honestly, like as I was reading the articles for this, uh, Again, I keep saying this phrase for the podcast uh, in the 20 minutes before uh, we got on air. Um, (laughs) I was noticing like apparently some of the parents like who are coming to these school board meetings are like calling, you know, these educators and these school board members Marxists, uh, which like was utilized as a like a what is it a derogatory, you know, term. Um, I've also been called the Marxist in front of a classroom full of people back before I knew uh, what that was and it's it didn't feel good but there when I think about like okay so like who are the people historically who oppose fascism who oppose um, racism structurally and successfully it has been communist it has historically been um, Marxist anti-racist anti-fascist and so when it's like the the like using of these things as insults is very telling of like who um, who these like anti-critical race theory people think they're up against. Um, it's a miss, it's a little bit of a miss, uh, I don't know if the word is misnomer. It's a little bit of a mislabeling just because we know, like most of these folks are probably Democrats who are not like willing to sort of go to the mat on these issues the way I think other folks who were really committed to like anti-racist ideals would, but oof, yeah. Uh, I'm just kind of thinking about like who who can yeah who can win <laughs> who can win in this situation um, in a way that like uh, creates space for young black and brown folks to learn about themselves in public ed and I think it's people who are willing to be who are willing to be like yeah labeled in this way and act amongst these with these values uh, because we've seen that nobody else is willing to to risk it. I kind of want to talk a little bit about the, that labeling of like are you like a Marxist as a bad thing? Um, and this link with critical race theory and this language of the left, like if you're going to call this out as you're teaching Marxism, then you, what is it that you're teaching? Cause there's a name for what you're teaching too. And we often fail to identify that because we see it as the norm, you know, like the dominant classes ideology becomes like normalized. Because if we're not teaching Marxism, that doesn't mean we're teaching neutrally. We're teaching something else, right? If we're, unless we are trying to develop, see all these frameworks, capitalism, Marxism, communism, whatever the ism, enter it here. And like actually diving into these frameworks of viewing the world and letting students 
kind of figure out which ones have a truth to them, which ones don't. I think when that Marxist label is put on people, I'm always like, well, then what are you? If I'm a Marxist, like, what are you? Because you're something too. And I think if we flip that on its head, I mean, it could work. Maybe that's like a strategy I'm thinking of. Well, and I think that there's like, yeah, it is very interesting, like the free exchange of ideas. We need a, like an educational system that allows students to explore themselves. Isn't America great? We have freedom of speech and all these. <laughs> the best ideas rise to the top. Unless you bring up Marxism or socialism or communism, and those are what we call bad ideas that we can never speak of because they're wrong. And we know that because we never speak of them. And there's this like brick wall <laughs> of, yeah, like it, it, if you're so scared of Marxism because when people hear it, they're like, well, fuck, that makes more sense than that George Washington was nice, but not nice enough to care about black people or indigenous people then maybe then like maybe you need to expand your understanding of history like yeah if a framework makes more sense than the shitty one you're using you need to need to come up with a better argument or admit that you're just trying to repress it explicitly and you know of course they're not going to admit that it's a it's a class project it's a it's a white supremacist project to ensure dominance but i think the problem is that we're trying to fight using the tool of a democratic party that is interested in just like I think Soraya said like not being republicans they're not interested in being anything in fact they're scared of being anything that might lose them a vote like and one especially a former republican vote like being called marxist will lose you a former republican you might gain three people on the other side who you know had the right social studies teacher at some point and had some positive connotations but yeah I, I, th- I just think that there's yeah I think you're running into like this issue of yeah, labeling and then the fact that one side is so scared of being labeled and the other side is willing to embrace and or just reject their labels. Like, yeah, the, the right is becoming increasingly fascistic, but they just say, no, we're not. And then the media kind of goes like, yeah, I guess they are. They said they weren't. Whereas the Democrats, <laughs> the Democrats just sit there hand wringing and be like, oh, we'd never support Marxism. That's just the Soviet Union and nothing good ever happened there. And colonialism ended peacefully. And communists have only ever done bad things if you don't count all the good things like it's just yeah of course of course they don't get fucking support they're sniveling like cowards i don't know that spiral i, I got to spiral too there yeah i, I, I think, think i do that on every podcast at some point i just denounce the democrats as sniveling cowards <laughs> i mean you're not wrong you're not entirely <laughs> wrong at all um but but that idea of like wanting to please everyone or also like sorry i said not defining like yeah you're not, not Republican, but then what, what is this? Because I don't see a formation. It's like a blob, you know, I can't do much with that. Yeah. Um, and I think I always circle back to, for me, when it comes to like what you get to teach or don't teach in school, mm-hmm. the importance of this idea of nation building, like it's a constant project, right? And that's the project that the right is really, I've seen like they focus on it a lot. They always have the the nation building, the story of the nation and the importance of storytelling, right? Because at the end of the day, that's what critical race theory is. It's like, how are we telling the story of race in America? And controlling that narrative is essential to controlling like, you know, what you grow up thinking as a kid. I know I grew up thinking like America supposedly was a shit and then I realized it's just, the, you know, the government, it's a piece of shit, the land and some of the people are amazing, but the systems, you got to work on those. Well, yeah, I think that kind of maybe just step us forward in the agenda a little bit brings us to kind of this idea of like, who are the good guys here? Because I think there's this implicit 
setup between the Republicans and the Democrats is like the good and the bad guys in this conversation. And I think that um, the Democrats kind of frame themselves as defending real history, just like they defend real science in a way that I think like you're saying, uh, Jesenia, like speaks to like this idea of a non-ideological project. Um, but it's totally false. I mean, the Democrats ignore science, maybe not as much as the Republicans, but they definitely ignore science when it's uh, inconvenient. I'd say that mask order ended probably mm -hmm. earlier than it should have. I'd say that maybe some of uh, the shutdowns might need to return given the Delta variant, but the Democrats are unwilling to do that because it would make them unpopular headed into the midterms. They're ignoring science. Like <laughs> there's, there's plenty of instances of that. And I'd say the same with history. Like there's, there's uh, I didn't learn much about Vietnam War growing up in a Democrat controlled state. I, I didn't learn much about, or I learned that slavery was only one and perhaps a minor cause of the civil war growing up in a Democrat controlled state. They're, they're doing the same myth building and lying and like ignoring American imperialism and historic racism and histories of resistance that the Republicans do just with a different, they've got a different set of facts they'd like to emphasize um, that empower them. And I just think that there's this I think sometimes we fall into that trap of lining up on the good guys side when it's really just, as with so many issues, the conservative movement wants to make things worse. The Democrats say they're already pretty good and fuck the conservatives, but things are bad <laughs> is the problem outside of that reality. And yeah, I don't know how, like maybe to circle into like, if you have a response to that or to circle into Soraya's converse, uh, conversation around like, what does a win look like in this sort of scenario and who can maybe like fight for or deliver that win? Are there key constituencies or groups or what have you that, that we can be like working with or mobilizing around some of this that aren't just like write your senator and hope man i mean i mean a, a win around this like the the it's really about getting it down on like now that somebody said critical race theory shouldn't be th be taught and wants to get that down on paper now the fight's like how do we get it down on paper that it's okay to teach it and then beyond that to really win it's like how do is it just because you say it's okay to teach it doesn't mean it's going to happen there are tons of different ways that you can stop these ideologies from spreading in schools. Um, one is like just not implementing it. Because it's not saying like critical race theory should be taught in school, like mandatory. It's just fighting for the ability of using it. So I feel like that's like a very basic win. Um, but to actually implement the these frameworks to be used in schools, that is like a major fight because if you look at who teaches the majority of America, if you're gonna see, it might be like mostly conservative folks, you know? Cause I'm thinking about all the rural teachers in Michigan, like Detroit teachers are one thing and then you move further and further away from Detroit and it's like, teachers don't think the same way we do in this podcast. <laughs> um, and so it's like beyond just a piece of paper saying what you can and can't do. It's like literally how do we change hearts and minds or how do we hire more teachers with a deep understanding of these frameworks and know how to implement them in the classroom. And as for good and bad guys, man, they're all they're all bad guys to me right now, to be honest. They're all bad guys to me. I like how we started out apologizing for our cynicism. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Mm. Who are the good guys? I probably say this so often, but it's it's the organizers who are trying to create a space for like for young people to get to learn about themselves and learn about the country they're in with with uh, 
less like pro state pro us propaganda and more just openings for like critical understanding um those are the good guys whoever are good people whoever whatever roles they take um what does a win look like i love visionary thinking um though it's difficult when all of the six uh fire alarms in my home are beeping um intermittently but uh when i can get grounded and think about it honestly it looks like public education to like become a teacher being free because i feel like we'd see more black and brown educators um like uh, like black and brown educators like choosing to become a teacher and get like formally trained if it was more accessible and if they didn't have to worry about debt it would look like paying people competitive wages to like to be teachers um, particularly folks who are um, who are coming from like frontline communities and like who, who have personal stake in making sure that like black and brown kids in schools feel welcome and affirmed and can like learn about themselves um, it looks like I want anti-racist curriculum explicitly. Mm -hmm. Like that's the other piece of this that was annoying to me. It's just like, um, we're still hiding behind what's happening here. You've got like the people who are willing to be overtly awful and you've got the people who are just like, oh, we should just stay in the middle. Like, no, I want overtly anti-racist curriculum. Yeah. I want queer affirming curriculum, trans affirming curriculum. I want like I want to, like young people to have access to spaces that are putting those two things in conversation those three things in conversation with each other and like talking about how different types of oppression is connected um what does a win look like honestly I've been thinking about that all day I'm I'm starting to feel the vibe of like in the current absence of like intentional space like or in the current like since since this has become a side of struggle in public schools where are the community like which community spaces can like kids be getting this information kids and families be getting this information from until it can really uh be happening in public ed in a way that feels right um because I know like I know freedom schools exist I know there's a bunch of programs around the state that are like community-led that are um, intentional about um, creating space for for folks to learn these these concepts and like how do we if if the state is using its power to like limit what kids can learn how do we as community members um, create spaces where like we are teaching anyway um, Yeah, I'm trying to think about like what other wins look like, but I'm very much in the like just like just divest, <laughs> uh, divest uh, part of my of my thinking on this issue, which isn't super constructive, but it's what I got. Yeah, I, I think I, I might go the other direction a little bit in that I think I think that this well, I think a couple of things, so I'll try to say them one at a time. I think that this in like kind of points once again to sort of the centrality or not, not the exclusive centrality, but a key role that I think public education plays in this country currently in differentiating uh, along class and race lines for a lot of people's futures. And the way that I think some teachers have been able to fight back against gentrification in places like Chicago, 
which, you know, haven't been entirely successful, but I think like the CTU is an example of a union that has worked to combine the power of working people with the power of their community and shown that both can be more powerful together than either of them separately. And I think that I see this sort of as another indication of the key role that teachers and teachers unions have to play in the sort of re-urbanization of a lot of white people as they move back into cities um, and making sure that that can be a process that isn't about about just making spaces for those white people in black and brown communities and pushing those black and brown communities to the side. They can be making sure that those uh, communities that already exist are getting the resources they deserve. And because, I mean, that's one of the things that holds back gentrification is, is schools, quote unquote, not being good enough. And then suddenly the schools get better and suddenly the housing prices skyrocket and the community changes. And I think that teachers have shown to be a force that can fight back against those things, that can fight back against some of these more regressive teaching policies and that they potentially can strike um, and remove their labor from that system in a way that like, yeah, I, I don't think we can stand to give up on those spaces. Our, our, well, not mine, but the community children are being sent to these schools for hours and hours a day. Um, and people that we don't know, their children are being sent there for hours and hours a day. And it's worth fighting for that space. And it's strategic to fight for that space. Um, and I think in that, in that mind frame, I think looking at things like empowering those workers, their unions, and potentially fighting to empower tenure as something that's been really undermined in Michigan over the last several years and risks maybe going goodbye. <laughs> that wasn't the best word to use there, but disappearing in the next several years. Um, since, since it's been demonized on both sides, I think like if you're a teacher that teaches some of these concepts right now um, and a parent doesn't like it, you risk losing your job, especially if tenure is weak um, or goes away. And I think that um, looking at ways that we can protect teachers that are making these steps and help them organize and support them um, and empower workers more generally, but teachers unions in particular uh, to fight back against both curriculum changes as well as sort of like yeah. these uh, more structural changes to our community. I think that's where I see a really important side of struggle in this. Absolutely. I think you hit the nail on the head, head there with that. Um, teachers are already afraid enough to speak up to be honest, like we get targeted very quickly. And um, it took me a while to really believe that. But now teaching five years, I'm like, I've seen it. I've seen teachers get moved from schools for doing something incorrectly or questioning something. So I can only imagine if something like this really passes in the majority of states, then there's, you know, it's another way to, how do you say, um, I don't want to say, like, you know, then they tie something around your mouth so you can't speak. I forgot the word for that. Gagging? There you go. Yes, a gag. Yeah. Um, is it going to work? Maybe. But I also think that there is a lot of awareness because of, and this is probably part of the response, part of why they have decided to do this now, because of Black Lives Matter, because of the protest that happened in the summer, um, last summer there are a lot more people aware of the, these race, racism issues. And a lot of people are beginning to ask questions and they can't not, you know, if there's, if when the protests were happening, they were all over the news. Like if your kid has a phone, they were gonna see something about it. So they, a lot of them probably were gonna ask their parents or be talking about critical race theory or race shit in America anyways. And they're trying to like already pro they're being proactive in how are we going to respond to this, you know, at a national level. 
um, because kids they ask questions. They ask questions. Like you, if you if you were in a teacher in a school during all these protests and these rebellions, it's going to come up in your classroom. Kids are going to ask you about it, and you should have a response. Um, and teachers who didn't get flustered or feel like they're getting challenged. Um, and I think, yeah, so I'm gonna, I'm going on a rant now because now I'm thinking about all kinds of teachers and all these things, but, but yeah, um, I'm gonna stop there. Yeah, um, all those things, I'm, I'm really interested in like hearing about like, if, like, yeah, what are the ideas about how we can support uh, teachers, school board members, I don't know, library board members who are um, interested in creating space for, I, I feel weird calling it critical race theory because it just doesn't seem accurate, but for these like critical assessments of like the state basically, um, because yeah, like when we, yeah, when people are, are worried about being censored, being removed from their position, it just protects the people who are willing to come through and lie. The teachers who are willing to Absolutely. teach the book without challenging anything. And it protects the school board members who also have personal stake in maintaining racism and like in the, how it manifests in schools. Um, so I'm really interested in that conversation. I also, and hopefully we can touch on this before we hop off. I'm also just like thinking from the, uh, the campus organizing perspective and the, like the university higher ed space, like these kinds of conversations very often continue to boil up. Um, and by up, I mean like in years of education, like in the in the university setting, I like to think that there's a little bit more um, space to be critical, um, but we do see student populations like um, kind of jumping on the bandwagon of like not wanting diversity and inclusion trainings in their schools uh, since there's now it's being like there it like the Republican like the right wing uh, push for opposing critical race theory has made it uh, what is it what is the word for it has just made it okay to to also have people like um, not wanting to learn about racism in college, which, oh, this is, it's bananas. Um, but yeah, like these things always have impacts across the, the education spectrum. And I don't, I never know what to do, tell students oh, with dealing with this. Cause as you can see for me, I'm always just the like, what do we, how do we, instead of using, sometimes I defer to like for better or worse to like using, encouraging people to use their energy, like in the spaces where they can create things that that feel affirming for them but I feel like in this kind of situation tapping in and like build closing uh, I don't like to use military words but like closing rank in support around like folks who are yeah just trying to create a critical education space uh, feels like a better move here I, I like the military phrasing I think I feel like it's appropriate and important but <laughs> that's just me yeah, I, I think that I'd love to hear, like, just any of you have more thoughts on this. I think that there's, yeah, I think there's ways in which we we try to pretend that there's, like, if we just introduce the right ideas, uh, that this can happen sort of, like, more or less, like, through a battle of ideas. And I think that, like, the problem there is that money often share <laughs> influences which ideas get heard the most. And, like, there's issue with the, issues with that that, like, I don't think we're going to get to today, but just around, like, how textbooks are chosen. 
uh, conservative textbooks are favored because Texas buys them in bulk. And so there's an economic reason why textbooks that are more conservative get spread more readily. But I think that there's like another piece of this that is like, it is going to be about finding key points of struggle more than it is about finding like the quote unquote right answer that makes everyone accept critical race theory or class consciousness or mm-hmm. the idea that Marxism is an okay thing to engage with. Like, I think making sure that we can defend teachers who are willing to stand up, making sure that we can empower their unions to help defend them in a way that community can't, making sure that uh, we can fight for politicians that don't just change rules uh, at the top as far as like a set of parameters, but actually can change some of like um, what protects teachers and our communities in the classroom. Um, and, And what protects students also. I think that there's like another piece of this that like you may be as a student in a school that doesn't have the best teachers um, and finding ways for you to still get resources and make that a, uh, a built-in part of your process. Maybe there is a way that we can like um, have, like you're saying, more community learning that enters and engages with the classroom as opposed to an either or uh, sort of framework. Um, yeah, I, I think those are all things that, that kind of spring to mind as I'm engaging with this. Yeah, I mean, that, that last thought right there, I mean, this conversation could also spread further into how education in America works, you know, um, and that we haven't really updated our style of, of teaching and education for never. I think like formal public education in America isn't even really that old. And we've never really like, there's a new car, a new iPhone, like every so often. And I feel like education has not been updated. Um, and including myself, like I wonder like what data is out there to, to talk about all the different types of ways kids learn. Um, And this idea of community learning, I think is super important. Um, And then then there's so much too, because then there's the other piece, right? The materialist piece of like, if the state of Texas buys in both these um, particular textbooks and it makes it economically uh, logical to get those textbooks as a public school because you don't get enough money to begin with, like that's a thing. And like, so how do we have our materials and the things that we want our kids to learn in our communities? How do we get all that and make it super, super accessible and easy for schools to pick that up? Um, and then, you know, and then I feel like we come back around to this, this money, right? Where is the money coming from? Who is gonna have the money that's going to put their money where their mouth? If these are my values, I want these values to be in schools. And why are like, I'm not like, who are those people on the progressive left or who are in that area that are willing to do that? Are there any? And it's a more question because I really don't know. You know, we hear about a lot of the funders for the right side, but what about the other side? Where's the money at? And I think like, just on that part, the money on our side is in kind of two piles. I think there's the, the, the mass money that like has gone to folks and like protecting some of the most left-wing politicians like Ocasio-Cortez and uh, Sanders that um, and refused to leave in some instances where like mm. they're not relying as much on a big check from one or two people. But then I think there's also a big pile of money that comes from finance capital that comes from uh, tech capital. And those people are much more conscious of their role and interest in society than the mass money is at times. And they can act a little bit more complexly and spread their money <laughs> in intentional ways that it's harder to with mass money, just because like, you know, you're kind of buying into that person. You think Rashida Tlaib is cool. That Rashida Tlaib is pretty cool. <laughs> it makes sense to support her, but it's harder to like do that same sort of mass fundraising 
without a structure like a party that we've mentioned and without, I would say, some extra parliamentary work. Um, just I, I don't think this is work that can only be done through like getting our people elected over time and eventually changing curriculums. Um, because if we succeed in that, there's a strong likelihood money will flow around us and find another place to kind of cut off the movement at some point. And so, yeah, I, I think that there's I think there's structural issues in like how we on the left can try to mobilize our funds. And mm-hmm. it does, as most things do, lead back to that sort of idea of a party and an, an idea of a party independent of the Democrats. I think that there's a huge issue with trying to coordinate with an essentially conservative organization, which is what the Democrats are at this point. And conservative in a traditional sense in that like they want to keep things the way they are because they think they'll win if the Republicans keep doing what they're doing and they keep doing what the Dem- Democrats do then they think that demographically they'll just win magically in the next five to 10 years and then Republicans will just die out. Um, which I think they've been thinking that for like 80 years. <laughs> it seems like the Democrats have been really sure they're on the cusp of being a forever party for almost forever, but um, it never quite works out that way. I think we have this big additional section on like how history education is structured. We've been talking for a long time. So I think it might make more sense to kind of move towards a conclusion. What do you all think about that? Yeah, I agree, because that would be a whole other conversation, too. I think I'm good. Awesome. Uh, then, yeah, do we just want to do kind of like final thoughts on how you're reflecting on this? Maybe if you have some sort of call to action or next steps, do we want to do like a quick sign off thing? Yeah. So, I mean, just wrapping up some thoughts, um, you know, uh, it's at first, sometimes these these bills that are passed are easy to just like write off. Um, and be like, well, you know, we can always just teach it if we want to, right? Because I've, I've thought about that. Um, but I'm just trying to understand, like we've tried to through the podcast, this idea of like, but why? Why are they doing this now? What is it that they're trying to get out of this? Because they're not going to put all this money and work into something if there's not a motive behind it. And I think it's always important for us to be asking ourselves um, those questions. And, um, you know, uh, uh, as a teacher, I'm also a member of MyCore, and we are working towards bridging this idea of social justice and teaching and bridging this understanding that our students um, work like uh, life environments and how they live affect how we teach and how we teach is going to affect how our students live. Um, and so we're really trying to bring teachers together across Michigan in this moment. Um, to have a real conversation about the state of education and where, we, where we're going to push it and where we want it to go. Um, and it's a challenging task because Michigan is big and spread out. Um, so I would call everyone, say, if you're interested, to find us on Facebook, um, I-C-O-R-E, my core. Um, you can come into our Facebook group if you're a teacher and work as a, in a school or as an educator or as another role in a school and uh, see if if it vibes, if it works with you, if the ideology is fitting. Um, and yeah, that those are my, my final thoughts here. What is my course stand for, just really quick? Oh, right. <laughs> um, Michigan Caucus of Rank and File Educators. We're a caucus uh, made up of different unions across Michigan right now. Awesome. Uh, Sarai, do you wanna go? Yeah. Um... So sorry, I had all this time to think about what I was going to say. All I can offer is that if you are interested in like, I don't know, creating, I don't, I don't like pushing for change because I feel like I've written that in too many freaking grants. Um, <laughs> if you're interested in like building the power to 
impact these things that is possible. Um, I think a big, uh, a big piece of why the right um, can gain power and why like it feels difficult to criticize um, unjust things is because white supremacy is built to make it look like it's the only um, it's the only option and nothing will ever change, but that's not true. Um, being connected to organizations can help like push a strategy that makes wins for justice and liberation possible. So I say like join organizations, link up with your friends and like even if it's something as small as like defending a local school board member, um, creating spaces in addition to school where kids can like learn their history, like all those things are possible. We need creativity and energy and innovation in these movements. So um, tap in if that is what you are being called to do. Awesome. Um, yeah, and thank you both for hopping in. We kind of have like the uh, what to do if you're an educator slash maybe folks to engage with if you're in K through 12 with Jesenia and then uh, the college angle with the Michigan Student Power Network and Soraya. Um, so it's really good to have both y'all's voices in here. And yeah, I think I'll just conclude with like the basic thoughts that uh, critical race theory is good, actually. Communism is good. And that rich people should be stripped of their property if there is to be any hope of justice and goodness in our world. And I think that that's a good way to sign off. I'll maybe just start signing off all our podcasts with that. <laughs> yeah, thank you so much for hopping on. And uh, yeah, let's, maybe we can do that uh, history episode again. I think we have, we're getting fired up again here. I know I said that before, but I've got at least three more episodes planned and I'm talking to real human beings. They're not just in my head. So I'm excited for those. And if you all want, maybe we can come back and do a, a deeper dive on what the fuck is wrong with the way we talk about history in uh, some of the United States curriculum. Yes, much. I would love that. I'm into it. Absolutely. Awesome. Well, cool. Then we'll catch you all next time. And death to capitalism. Mm-hmm.